Good morning, church. The book of Acts, chapter 18, verses 1 through 17. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked. For they were tent makers by trade, and he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads, I am innocent. For now I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was pro-council of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of question about words and names of your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal, and they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. May God bless the reading and the hearing of his holy word. You may be seated. Thank you, Bill. Thank you, praise team. We are in Acts 18 this morning, and so as you're turning there, I just need to you know, I always want to warn the church of impending danger that's coming up. And uh, I'm not the only one that had a birthday this week. My daughter, Ellie, turned 16 and got her driver's license. So <laughs> just be aware of a red Honda Accord in the parking lot. Uh, and now I'm in trouble for the rest of the day. Okay. So I'll have to live with the decisions that I've made. <laughs> We, we, brothers and sisters, inhabit a world that is um, always wanting to make uh, things easier. Uh, you know this. This is intuitive. Uh, I was joking around with Ellie after she got her driver's license, and I said, I was kind of doing the math in my head, you know, when I'm about maybe 75 years old, perhaps I'll have a hand in training your children to drive as well. I've been successful four out of four, you know, training the kids how to drive. Um, so maybe I'll help train your kids. And she said, Dad, when my kids drive, they'll just plug the address into the computer. They won't have to learn how to drive. And I thought, oh, uh, a couple of generations ago, they didn't have cars. And a few generations from now, no one will probably have to learn to drive. She's probably right. There's also a phenomenon known as snowplow parents. I don't know if you've heard this term before, but snowplow parents go before their children, kind of making sure that they don't face any adversity making sure that the school keeps the standards nice and low so they can hit and get all A's, that the, the coaches don't demand too much of their athletes so that they can start on the team and, and all these kinds of things, play a lot, have a lot of playing time. Whatever it is in life, we have this desire to make things easier. There's all kinds of inventions of modern technology that make our lives much easier. And yet, we can also observe as we look around this world, as we see people who have gone through tremendous adversity, that those people have something that perhaps you find yourself lacking in, which is character. 
and the, uh, the ability to work through and to live through and to even prosper through terribly difficult times, oppressive governments, bodily injury, you get the idea. In other words, these people who suffer what we would think would be a crippling, debilitating, I can't go any further in life injury, have gone on to soar. We see some of that in our passage today, or at least I want us to see some of that in our passage today. Paul Paul is demonstrating to us, and he will continue to demonstrate to us in this passage today, that, that ministry work is not always easy. It's often tough and uh, challenging and dangerous. And yet, the call to grow and change and become more like Christ is not a call that we just, you know, it's just an easy thing. You know, that we just, we read our Bibles and we just become like Jesus. And so, as we look to this passage today, I, I want to draw from it some things that we can learn. The question I want to wrestle with is this one. Gospel work can be very difficult, but what are some of the blessings found within the challenges? What are some of the blessings found within the challenges? I've entitled the sermon, The Blessings of the Challenges of Gospel Work. The Blessings of the Challenges of Gospel Work. So let's just work our way through the text. There's about three things I want to share with you today. The first one is the deprivation of gospel work. The deprivation of gospel work. It says, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. Now, I just want to say, leaving Athens and going to Corinth is kind of like leaving Cambridge and going to Las Vegas. Athens was a center of thought and reason and culture. Uh, You would be highly valued there if you were a, a great philosopher or scholar. Corinth was like the center of commerce and trade, and there's a lot of industries that grew up in there that, that catered to people in that, in that uh, venue. And so uh, Corinth was, has been described by many, not just me, as the Las Vegas of its day. And so you could imagine, even though these two towns are some 50 miles apart or so, that when Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, it was quite a culture shock. But I want to point out... Uh, and this, this gets missed if you don't look carefully at the text, that Paul is entering Corinth alone. This is rare for him. He usually has a ministry partner with him, uh, but uh, Luke, it seems, is not even with him because it, Luke would say, after we left Athens and went to Corinth, but uh, the author doesn't say that. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. Paul, or sorry, t- uh, Silas and Timothy are otherwise engaged. Luke, apparently, I don't know where Luke's at. He's not with him. But Paul is coming in alone. Uh, imagine going to Las Vegas just all by yourself. Uh, I'm sure there's a lot of culture shock there. I have had the opportunity when early in my life, I, when I was an engineer, I went to Las Vegas for trade shows and stuff. And I can remember after one long day of working in one of the booths on this trade show that my coworkers and I, we piled into a cab. This was before Uber. We piled into a cab, and we wanted to go get something to eat. And so we asked the driver to take us somewhere to eat, and the driver asked us instead to take us to another place, and, that, and it was not a good place, okay? I want to keep this PG rated. But asked us if we wanted to, to go see a certain someone perform. And uh, because we were all Christians, it was very easy for us to say, no, thank you. Uh, we would like to go, you know, where's, where, what steak place would you recommend? And that's where we went. Corinth was the Las Vegas of its day, and um, the temple of Aphrodite was there, and the worship of Aphrodite involved practices that are, let's just say, very attractive to the flesh. There are all kinds of temptations in Corinth, and Paul entered that city by himself. I'm often reminded in, in situations like this of Ecclesiastes 4, right, where it talks about the um, the benefit of, of having a partner or partners in any kind of work. Um, and, and you can read that on your own, but, you know, it carries with it the idea that if one of, I think one of the lines in there is, but well, uh, if, if one fall, one will lift up his fellow. And um, we need that. That's, uh, it's wise to have partnership when we're doing gospel work. But Paul is coming in alone. Second, secondly, 
uh, we see that he's, that there's displacement, right? So we read about this for the first time, we're reading about Aquila and Priscilla, and they, it's not clear in this text, are even Christians yet. It, the, the text, Luke, describes them as Jews. So they might not have even heard about Christ yet or not have come to Christ yet. Anyway, Paul found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. Why? Because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. They were displaced. They were not welcome any, they were persona non grata in Rome. So all the Jews had to leave. Uh, Aquila is a tent maker. He's a tradesman. And so he's going to go to Corinth to ply his trade there to make some money. So it's, it's interesting. Paul is also faced with this from time to time, right? Paul will go into a town. They'll start teaching in the synagogue. They'll get mad at him in there. Then he'll teach some Gentiles. And then they'll finally, the, the leaders of the synagogue will get fed up with him and cause a riot to stir up a riot. And then Paul will have to leave. And so uh, there is a real sense. This is kind of how, you know, the, what did Jesus say? Uh, the son of man has no, you know, foxes have holes, right? Uh, birds have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. Uh, is, is, uh, this is kind of what Paul is facing. Open Doors, an international non-government organization, consistently reports that Christians all around the world face persecution and death because of their faith. In 2021, it was reported in Forbes that on an average day, 13 Christians are killed for their faith, 12 churches or Christian buildings are attacked, 12 Christians are unjustly arrested, detained, or imprisoned, and five Christians are abducted for faith-related reasons. And these, of course, are worldwide numbers. But the idea, again, just reinforcing this, the idea that uh, gospel work is always going to be easy work. We're just going to be able to hit that easy button and do this is not consistent with what we were taught by Christ in the scriptures. Second Timothy, Paul writes this, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And Jesus himself taught us this over and over again. I find it interesting, a couple of things interesting. Number one is I find it interesting that sometimes Christians will unwittingly will unwittingly call resistance to the message God closing a door. And I just want to point out that in the text, Paul doesn't see it that way. Resistance to the message is not an excuse to say, or, or, or to signal to us to say God is closing a door, right? And so we ought to stop doing any gospel work in that city. Um, Paul, he continues to work as long as he's got people to listen he continues to work. The second thing that I find interesting, if you think about it, as you know, probably, maybe you don't, Priscilla and Aquila are going to go on to be, they're going to come to Christ and they are going to become great ministry partners of Paul's. And so God in his sovereign plan, a plan that we can't see, displaced Priscilla and Aquila from Rome. So they went to Corinth at the same time Paul is coming into Corinth and they had those two things in common their Jewish heritage and their trade, and that forces them, or doesn't force them, but it brings them together in relationship. The third thing uh, that we see in terms of deprivation is poverty, poverty. Uh, the connections between Paul and Aquila, like I said, are two, their shared common Jewish heritage and their, their trade. It seems, and, and I get kind of excited thinking about this, but um, I, I like, I'm a car guy. I like to work on cars. Like, I don't do body work or paint or anything like that, but like to work on the engine or the brakes or something like that, I like to do that. And it's always fun getting together with another car guy and kind of comparing notes. Maybe somebody's thought of a better way to do something or, or something like that. So I'm envisioning Paul and Aquila getting together and they're starting to, to put tents together and do some leather work, and Paul's like, well, this is the way I do it. Aquila's like, that's genius. I've never seen that before. And Aquila says, this is how I stitch the tents together. See how this kind of seals it up better? And Paul's like, wow, I've never, nobody taught me that. So these guys are coming together. And it's perhaps in those hours spent together that, um, that Paul talks to Aquila and Priscilla and leads them into a relationship with Christ. We don't know. Anyway, uh, 
the point I'm trying to make here is that Paul was dependent on donations to fuel his ministry. And it seems like as he's coming into Corinth, his, his money bag has run empty. And so in order for him to continue on in the work, at least part-time, he's going to have to become bivocational, sometimes making tents, sometimes in the synagogue, reasoning with the, with the leaders there and the people there. We do this in the church, right? The church, uh, Pastor Aaron, Pastor Brad, Pastor uh, Stevanis, sorry, uh, Pastor Brad, we all uh, are beneficiaries because we are dedicating ourselves to the work in kind of a full-time capacity. We are dependent on your generous donations to, to keep us, to give us the benefit of allowing us to do that. Um, and where I come from out in the country, a lot of pastors do have to become bivocational because they either serve very small congregations or they just can't make ends meet, so they've got to work a job part-time and, and be a pastor part-time. And the model here seems to be the same. Paul is being funded by the church in Antioch, his home church, but as, as well as other believers. But for now, he's run out of money, and he's exhausted his funds, and he has to work in order to supply his daily bread. And you know, again, you can kind of see the Christ-likeness in this. What does 2 Corinthians 8 9 says? It says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, right, at the right hand of the Father up in heaven, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty, that you by his poverty might become rich. One of the things that's just prevalent in our world today is this whole idea of the prosperity gospel, right? The, the gospel, the false teaching that's put out there by Joel Osteen and other, I would say, TV evangelists, Jesse Duplantis, you know the names, who say the exact opposite of what Paul is experiencing here. They say, if you love Jesus, you will be rich, you will be wealthy, you will be, everything's good. And they prove it by the fancy cars that they drive and the private jets that they place the burden on their congregation and their viewers at home to supply the money for, saying, in order to do this gospel work, I need to have this private jet in, in order to do this. And oh, by the way, this private jet is a symbol of God's, of God's uh, approval of my ministry. Well, I've got news for Mr. Duplantis, Mr. Osteen, and others. Are you saying that Paul, because he wrote into Corinth, like, with his money bag running dry and that he had to go work as a tent maker? Are you saying that Paul's ministry wasn't affirmed? That doesn't make any sense to me. Certainly, Paul, the most prolific church planter in, recorded in the scriptures, is approved by God. So we need to be mindful when we see things and we hear claims like this to compare it with what the scripture says. So before we go to the next point, let me just ask this question. What is the blessing of this deprivation? You know, the, the, the loneliness, the danger, the, I'm sorry, the loneliness, uh, the, um, the displacement, the poverty. What are the blessings of this? Well, the blessings of this seems to be that it forces us to build relationships. It forces us to build relationships. Paul is forging a new relationship with Priscilla and Aquila. Later, they will become key ministry, key players in his ministry. But one of the things about us as the body of Christ is that uh, we, we live in modern times. We have modern technology. When COVID hit, we went to online church for a while. And I hope that it's been your experience as it has been my experience that we need to be gathering regularly in person for fellowship so that we can build relationships with each other. Why? So that when something happens, like somebody in our church is down and they need us, we can be there for them. When the Santa Fe is one of our missionaries that we've, you know, partnered with, when they get robbed, we can be there for them. Um, supporting them in prayer and sometimes in finances, sometimes in other ways. This is a critical part of the ministry are these relationships and being reminded that we need each other once in a while is a good thing. The second thing we see in the text is the danger. 
of gospel work. Pick it up in verse 4. So this is Paul. He reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived, oh boy, we get some partners back. Uh, they arrived from Macedonia. Paul was occupied with the word testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. Let me, let me explain that statement. The Jews believed that there would come a Messiah, a Christ. And they thought in their heads that the, the Christ, the Messiah that would come, would be like previous rescuers of Israel, like Moses, who, with God's, you know, with God's power, led Israel out of Egypt with the mighty hand, outstretched arm of God, like the judges in the Old Testament that, after Israel found itself, because of their sin, being oppressed by foreign nations, God would raise up Gideon and Samson and, and, and even Deborah, uh, would raise up these leaders to lead them in a kind of a military way out of the oppression of their enemies. They were like King David, who rescued Israel from the Pharise, uh, Philistines and, and other outside invaders. The Jews thought the Christ, the Messiah, would be like that. And, and here's Paul in the synagogue reasoning, this Jesus, this Jesus that you've heard about, this Jesus that claimed to, be, to work all these miracles, this Jesus who was crucified in Jerusalem and rose again on the third day, he is the Messiah. He is the Christ. I'm envisioning Paul reasoning from the Old Testament and helping them to make that connection. But that's not the Messiah they were looking for. And so they struggled. He was the stumbling block, Scripture tells us. Jesus was the stumbling block. Verse 6, And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. So Paul's, what's Paul saying there? He said, I've proclaimed the good news to you. You're not listening to me. So I, I don't know... You know, it's getting hostile in here. I don't know what to do except to walk away and, you know, your blood be on your own heads is him saying, I've told you the truth and you refuse to listen. I'm innocent. And he left there and he went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. And can I tell you, I love that. How awesome is it that God... <laughs> God allowed Paul to set up shop and teach, teach people next door to the synagogue when the synagogue got... I got to believe that when the leaders of the synagogue heard about that, that really, that chapped them pretty good. Anyway, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord. So here, Paul's having fruit, right? Uh, God's giving Paul fruit in, in the form of the leader of the synagogue and together with his entire household. And many uh, of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of, of God among them. A couple things. First of all, there's other biblical information like in 2 Corinthians 11 and Philippians 4 that tells us that when Silas and Timothy arrived into Corinth, they carried with them some of the financial contributions of some other churches, the churches in Macedonia, uh, Philippi specifically. And that these financial give these this financial support was probably the reason why paul was able or we read in verse five paul was occupied with the word testifying to the jews that christ was jesus in other words paul is being bivocational when he needs to be bivocational he's making tents he's teaching in the synagogue but when the support money comes in he abandons the 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 tent making and he devotes himself completely to uh, the ministry of the word interesting stuff well, the danger of the gospel. Why is the gospel so dangerous? Because it's countercultural. It was countercultural in Paul's day, as like I said earlier, the Jews were expecting a certain Messiah. They were certainly expecting the, the Christ, the Messiah, to come and rescue them from the hands of the Romans, liberate Israel to be an autonomous people once again. But when he didn't do that. And when Paul, when Jesus' message, and then by 
continuation, Paul's message was, no, no, Jesus came to die on the cross to pay the penalty for your sin, to liberate you from your sin, to give you a right relationship before God. That is not the message that they wanted to hear. And it, so hard was it for the Pharisees, the Jewish religious leaders in the synagogues, to disagree with everything they've taught up till then, to disagree with the other leaders, and for the people to disagree with their religious leaders, that it got heated, right? He was opposed and reviled. And I want to argue, I want to argue this morning that the, the message of the cross, the message of Jesus Christ, is countercultural in our day too. Because it starts out with the premise that we're all broken, we're all sinners. And today, the message that's out there that seems to be in the, seems to be kind of the zeitgeist of our time that's in the air is, you are whoever you say you are. In other words, the message out there seems to be, I am my God. My God is me. And so when someone comes along and says, no, actually, there is a God, and it's not you, and God, and, and you're, you're a sinner before him, and you need to be forgiven of your sins, and you need to be transformed, that message is very countercultural. Because what, what does it mean? Think about the real-life implications. It means that we have to practice self-control of our tongue. It means that we have to reprioritize our, our values and it's not about me anymore. It's about me living for another, sacrificially for not just God, but for my neighbor, right? And that reprioritization is countercultural to what's going on in our world today. And so that results in threats, right? Paul is opposed and reviled. And these men, like I said, they are so, they're so fearful of going back on everything that they believed up till then. They're so fearful that they're, they're operating their lives in the fear of man. They can't give up the synagogue system. They can't give up the Old Testament law. They can't say that it was fulfilled in Christ. Why? Because they, they fear other men. And so they resist. There's a man in our world today. Uh, he's, a, he's a younger man than me. His name is Christopher Rufo. And... Um, He's a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, but he's also been recently put on the board of, uh, at a place called the New College in Florida in Sarasota. And uh, he was, he was uh, appointed by the governor of Florida. Whatever you think of him doesn't matter. Uh, he, found, he found, and others have found, that at New College of Florida, like other universities, uh, it was not a place of open dialogue and debate and inquiry. That it had become beholden to a certain set of thoughts and values and that everybody else that would question that was forced out, ostracized, ca called names, and, and told to leave. And Mr. Rufo, <clears throat> Mr. Rufo wanted to attempt to change the culture there, along with the other board members, to, to reestablish New College of Florida as a place of, of true learning, of open dialogue, debate, that there were no topics off, off limits. And so uh, they decided to have a meeting between the student body and the, they put the leadership, the, the board members up on the platform, just to kind of lay out their new vision and hear from the students what they thought and have a dialogue. And before that meeting could happen, uh, someone emailed in a vague death threat against one of the board members. So the provost of the college and the president of the college said, oh, nope, can't have this meeting. It's a safety issue. Shut it down. We cannot have this meeting. Shut it down. Well, the board members uh, consulted with law enforcement and, and learned from law enforcement that this is probably not a credible threat. It doesn't have any of the earmarks of a credible threat. Um, we think that there's just somebody upset that this meeting is happening and so said the right words and the right combination to get you guys fearful enough to shut it down. So the board took a vote, and they voted to have the meeting. 
And then there was conflict between the provost of the, and the president and the board, the board saying, we need to have this meeting, we need to drive this university in a new direction, and the provost and the president saying, this is a safety issue, shut it down. The board eventually won, they had the meeting, and it was very constructive. Not everybody agreed, but you know what? In this room, we, we don't all agree about everything, right? I mean, I think Tyler and I probably, Tyler Alexander and I probably disagree on Purdue basketball, you know, something as small as that. I mean, we both went to Purdue, right? I hate Matt Painter as the coach, and he really, really hates Matt Painter as the coach, so he don't agree. <laughs> I hope this doesn't reach Matt Painter. I actually hope it does. <laughs> anyway, the point I'm trying to make here is that here's Paul in the synagogue opening up the Old Testament, showing these men how, making those connections, Jesus... This man from Jerusalem, this man that died in Jerusalem is resurrected on the third day. He was the Christ. He's, he's using logic and reason, and he's helping them make the connections. And when they don't like the message that is heard, it's not, let's agree to disagree. It's, it's name-calling. Oppose, revile, and he's driven out. And it's like this college. When, when logic and reason isn't going to work, there's underhanded attempts to just shut down the conversation altogether. I believe that Christianity, uh, I believe that the Bible holds up to the scrutiny of logic and reason. And uh, we need not to be afraid to make arguments from God's word. So what's the blessing? If there's so much danger in the gospel work, what is the blessing of it? Well, it forces us to depend on God. I don't know what, it's, the Bible doesn't fill in the blanks for us. I don't know what was going on in Paul's life. I don't know if he was feeling a lot of anxiety or a lot of fear about continuing to operate his ministry in Corinth at the time. But for whatever reason, God gives him a vision in the night. Verse 9 do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. God says, get going. And verse 11 says that he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. That was the second longest that we know of that Paul stayed anywhere. Ephesus was number one, Corinth was number two. 2 uh, Corinthians 12, 10, Paul writes this, For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecution, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. When you are in a place where you need to depend on God, when you, need, when you are forced back into his word, you're forced to go talk to other people who are more knowledgeable of God's word, to find out what it says in different circumstances, when you're forced to get down on your knees and pray because you know that there's people out there that are thinking nefarious thoughts and maybe even taking nefarious actions against you. This is a blessing because it drives us back to God lest we get proud and think that our ministry somehow depends on us. I've been at this for a minute. I just turned 50. <clears throat> I can't change anybody's heart. Only God can do that. My job is to simply share the truth of God's word, to do it in love, and to um, pray to him that he will change someone's heart. All right, last thing. The distortions in gospel work. The distortions in gospel work. In this last episode, in verses 12 through 17, we see that the Jews, not content with driving Paul out of, <laughs> I, I keep laughing, pa driving Paul out of the synagogue to, his, to the next door. <laughs> it's argued in some of the commentaries, by the way, that the synagogue and the next door neighbor shared a wall. Isn't that hilarious? It's like, Paul's just across this wall teaching. Anyway, I find it hilarious. Anyway, 
It wasn't enough that the Jews had driven Paul out of the synagogue. Paul was still having a fruitful ministry, even among the Jews. Remember, he, Crispus came to Christ. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, came to Christ. So now they're going to take Paul, which is their way. They're going to take Paul to the governor. It says, but when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, let me give you some background here. Corinth is a city. It's in the province or the state of Achaia. Okay, so the proconsul of Achaia, who is Gallio, is kind of like summoning the governor of this state or province. Okay, so they're going to take Paul now to the governor of the Roman Empire, right? He's a representative of the Roman Empire. When Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal. So basically like in the court, saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. Now, I want to point out that it is often the case that as we go about operating our lives out there in the world, that we are often going to come into contact with people who aren't really... They, didn't, they haven't taken the time to understand what Christianity is, and so they're probably just recycling talking points. You know, for example, looking at us and saying, oh yeah, you Christians, you perpetrated the Crusades. And like, okay, that was the Roman Catholic Church for number one, and for number two, that was wrong. The Crusades were wrong. I mean, they were, that was messed up. That was bad theology put into action. But again, uh, folks don't, folks are often talking about a version of Christianity that that's not true. And so when they get up and they say to the proconsul, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law, they're kind of like muddling together the Jewish Old Testament law with Roman law. And Gallio doesn't really know the difference, it seems like. Let me give you some more background. In the Roman Empire, there was a list of religions that you could practice lawfully, and the Jewish religion was one of them. It was fine to be Jewish in the Roman Empire. They approved it. But to them, to the, to, to the Jews, Christianity following Christ was not Jewish. It was, it was anti-Jewish, right? It was, it, was, it was different. But to the Romans, they looked, at, they looked at Christians and said, well, Jesus was a Jew, and they're following a Jewish guy, and he was a rabbi, you know, and they're, in their minds, they don't see the difference, so they think it's lawful. So this is kind of a very muddy situation. The Jews are coming to the governor of the state and saying, these guys are worshiping contrary to the law, but they're not giving, they're not providing clarity to this proconsul on why that is. Secondly, political leaders often do not understand Christianity right? And we see Gallio here, and he, according to a strict understanding, Christianity, yes, is different than Jewish, the Jewish faith, and it's not on the list of approved religions, and so Gallio should prosecute. But he doesn't understand the difference between Christianity and Judaism, and maybe that just hasn't become widely known yet, and so he sees them as one and the same. I once read a story about a fellow in, in uh, Washington, D.C., who um, would read journalists' accounts of things that were going on in the world, especially as about things that were going on in the world that related to Christianity. And it became very obvious to him that not many journalists, especially the younger journalists, had a working understanding of what Christianity even was. And they often muddled together Roman Catholicism, Mormonism, Protestantism, liberal Protestantism, conservative Protestantism, they muddled it all together and lumped it into one big thing, and they even got that wrong. Like the basic core tenets of Christianity, they did not understand. And so he took it upon himself to rent out a hall in a hotel, like a ballroom, and uh, put on a big spread, get, get some money together, uh, put on a big spread of food, and invite these journalists to come and would give them a one-day crash course in Christianity. And uh, the, the journalists afterwards said, we had no idea. This is so helpful. Now we kind of understand the lay of the land better. It made them better journalists. Um, and he continued to do that once a year for many years. Gallio doesn't really understand what's going on here. And so he chooses not to act. Why? 
it kind of reminds you of Pilate, right? They, they keep, they keep Je- bringing Jesus in front of Pilate, and Pilate says, I don't find anything wrong with this guy. I'm going to punish him and release him. I don't find anything wrong with this guy. I'm going to punish him and release him. And Gallio's kind of the same way. He's like, I don't see anything wrong with what Paul's doing here. So he says, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it's a matter of questions about words and names and your own laws, you see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of such things. And he drove them from the courtroom, from the tribunal. Now, it's just interesting to me. This is just a connection in history. Gallio is Seneca's brother. Seneca is a very famous, well-known Stoic philosopher, and um, here I'll, here's one of Sten- he's very quotable. Uh, Seneca's quotes: "Throw me to the wolves, and I will return leading the pack." Um, but that's not. There's so many quotable Seneca points. What I'm saying is that Stoic philosophers were very well known for trying to practice self-restraint, not letting their emotions carry them into a battle they shouldn't be in. And so I'm imagining Gallio as Seneca's brother, kind of some of Seneca's thoughts rubbed off on him. And Gallio is not the kind of guy, because of his Stoic philosophy, who's going to say, well, I'm the ruler of Achaia, and they're having a conflict, so I'm going to rule on it because it seems like everybody's against Paul. I'm just going to let myself jump into that and rule against Paul. He actually is a guy of tremendous self-restraint and says, this is not my, this is not my bailiwick. This is between you guys. Take care of it. And so uh, he doesn't. He doesn't hear them. And they all seized Sosthenes, it says at the end, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. And Gallio, but Gallio paid no attention to any of this. Somebody after first service asked me what's going on with that. The, the truth is, is that we don't know. It could be that the Jews were so revved up and so upset at Paul and bringing him into Gallio and getting no results that the guy who took the brunt of their anger was Sosthenes because he was the leader of the synagogue and he should have brought a better case to Gallio. But because he, he just said, hey, he's teaching stuff against the law, and, and Gallio said, I don't want to hear this, um, they were upset with him then. Now, why is this a blessing? Why is it a blessing? When we encounter <clears throat> distortions in gospel work, why is that a blessing? And here's my answer to you, is because it forces us to think. It forces us to think. We can sometimes, in our little Christian bubble, we can say, there's people out there in public saying things about us that aren't true, things about Christians that aren't true, and bummer, you know? But we have the opportunity to, let me say it this way. This is not the church. Delaware Bible Church was founded in 1958, but it's not 1958 anymore, or 68, or 78, or 88, or 98. It's, two, it's 2023, and the, the distortions of the, of the church and the gospel that are out there in the public now, those are the things that we should be engaging our brains with to try to learn how to help people to come to a better understanding of who Jesus is and what he's done for them. Let me give you an example. Uh, You know this, but it's always fun to read it. In 2 Samuel 12, uh, the Lord sent Nathan to David. After David had committed adultery with Bathsheba, after David had killed Bathsheba's husband uh, by sending him out into the front lines and then retracting the army and him getting killed by the, uh, uh, the Amorites, After all this went down, the Lord sent Nathan to David. Now, David is the highest ranking guy in the land. He's the king. Nathan is a prophet. If Nathan goes into David and says to him, David, you adulterous, murdering so-and-so. David's probably going to go hunting on his little panel here for the button that releases the, you know, the trap door under Nathan's feet that goes to the lions or the, the fiery furnace or whatever, right? But look what Nathan, look what Nathan does. <clears throat> he came to him 
and said, There were two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had brought, which he had bought. And he, he brought it up, and it grew up with him and his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And he was like a daughter, it was like a daughter to him. Now there was a traveler came to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock to, or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he has had no pity. Just hang with me for a second. We're almost done. Nathan told David a story that was designed to, to prick David's sense of justice, his sense of right and wrong, and to help him to reach that point where he would say, that's not right, that's messed up, and, and that guy, needs, he deserves to die, but he's going to restore this lamb fourfold. And then Nathan said to David, you are the man. I anointed you king over Israel. And I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms. And gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you much, as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do evil, to do what is evil in his sight? And of course, you know the rest of the story after this. David, King David, highest station in the land, unlike King Saul, King David repented. Living in the time that we live in, with the distortions of the good news that are out there. I get it. Um, if you walk around Delaware today, if you go to any of the, I don't, if you, if you go to, to, in the Delaware on a normal day, if you go to one of the library branches, there's somebody out there holding the clipboard and they're trying to get you to sign a petition to get abortion on the ballot to make it a constitutional amendment in Ohio in the next election. There's a concerted effort going on to get that on the ballot. Are we behaving, are, are we going to be the people that are going to walk up to that person and bat that clipboard out of their hand and express anger, or are we going to view that person as a person who God has articulated in his word that he desires all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth, and are we going to conduct ourselves in that manner? Sometimes, our talking points to the world around us can be talking points that were contrived in the back rooms of Fox News or the Family Research Council and are not designed, they're designed to win, a, to win some sort of a debate, but they're not designed to get to the heart of the person that we're talking to. And that's a tactical error on our part. Because if we have some sort of political victory and, and abortion doesn't make it on the ballot next year, how many hearts and minds have we changed and how many people have gotten saved because of the finished work, the glorious sacrificial offering of Jesus himself on the cross for our sins so that we can have our sins forgiven by his mercy and that we can become adopted sons and daughters of him by his grace and spend eternity with him forever. Folks, that's what we got to be focused on. That's what will change hearts and minds. I'm not saying abortion is a scourge. It is, but, but our work here is gospel work. And so uh, we are often placed in situations where people have a misunderstanding of the gospel or a misunderstanding of Christianity, but this is a blessing because it forces us to be like Nathan and think, how can we get to their hearts? All right. Here's the answer to the big question today. Though gospel work can be extremely challenging, carrying it out diligently can drive us to build relationships, depend on God, and sharpen our minds. In other words, doing gospel work is hard. And that difficulty that we have before us 
is a blessing. It forces us to, to do things that are good for us, forces us to build relationships, forces us to depend on God, forces us to sharpen our minds. So let's just think of a few applications today before we go, which is uh, some things to think about. Have you applied yourself to gospel work such that you need to form solid relationships? If you, if you find yourself in a situation where you've got it all figured out, I promise you, you have not engaged in gospel work at the level that you need to because every single day that I'm engaged in the work, I am trying to get my hands on everything, everything and everyone I can to help me. I'm asking people their opinions about this and that. I'm grabbing books off the shelf and trying to read through them and, and, and gain a deeper understanding. And I find that I need a lot of help. Secondly, do you find yourself, do you find your gospel work drives you towards dependence on God? Uh, you know, this may be a, a bit of a, a shock to you, but I, I can't change one heart. Only God can do that. I can minister the, the word of God, I can minister the gospel to people, but I can't change anybody's heart. And so I need to be on my knees in dependence on God, asking him to do that, which I cannot do. And then, finally, do you find your gospel work drives you to think and reason from the scriptures given today's culture? To think and to reason from the scriptures given today's culture. There's a lot going on in our culture today and a lot of directions that our culture is heading that are not good and healthy. And uh, we have the opportunity to speak into those things if we will apply ourselves to it. Let's pray. Lord, we need your help. It's easy for us, so easy to, for us to succumb to the understanding that if we're acting according to your will, life is always going to be easy, simple, straightforward. And yet we see here Paul, isolated, running out of money, uh, put in a dangerous situation with people around him that don't really understand what's going on, or what he's even about. And yet you appearing to him in a vision and saying, don't be afraid. Keep on speaking. I am with you. Father, may it be impressed upon us as we leave here today that we are to keep on speaking, to not be afraid, and to remember that you are with us. And we thank you for that and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.